Hello, folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visa blog and author of a special relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the secret history of the Anglo-American establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visaview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word dot blogspot.com and procure a copy of that book and other works at the farm's official store which is at the farm store that is the farm podcast all one word dot store be sure to check the blog folks i actually have just recently updated that with some new articles so keep a gander out for things there and please consider signing up for the farm's patron i've got a couple of different tiers the cheapest one you get two additional full-length shows per month that's between three and four hours of bonus material bonus material with exclusive gifts and content and for the upper tier you get more exclusive articles by uh, weekly state of the union addresses with recluse and other goodies so keep all that in mind folks okay guys I have got one of my favorite and most valued recurring guests for today's show. He has been a writer for Project Censored, Daily Censored, and Truth Out, among many others. He received the Project Censored Most Censored News Stories for 2009 and 2008 awards, and he has also published more than seven books on education in the past 20 years, including Charter School Movement, History, Politics, Policies, Economics, and Effectiveness. He has decades of activism underneath his belt, stretching back to the anti-war movement in the 1960s. He moved to Nicaragua in 1980 to support the Sandistas and fought against the charter schools towards the turn of the 21st century and beyond. Finally, he has been investigating parapolitics for nearly 50 years. Folks, I give you guys the legend, Dr. Danny Weil. Danny, thank you so much for dropping back in today, sir. Well, thank you for your very kind introduction. It's a joy- enjoyment to be here with you again. Let me just make one correction on, on the intro, and that is, and, and, and actually it's probably a, a, probably a decent, really a way to start. And that is uh, in 1983, um, uh, which seems a long time ago, and in fact is almost 40 years, I had uh, finished a, a fight in a local community against a municipality and was, uh, I'd, I'd lost the fight. It had taken about three years of, to fight a, a, a project, a large project that was being put forth by Hewlett Packard. And um, I was a young man at the time. Uh, I'm an old man now. That was how old man I think it was to 30 years old at the time. And um, after losing uh, this thing, I didn't have any job or work or anything. I said, well, I want to go and live somewhere where, where I can actually see a revolution. And I said, well, there's... Um, I went to a meeting in 1982 and I was, uh, became a member of CISPIS, which was a committee um, uh, uh, for El Salvador, the people of El Salvador, uh, which was uh, formed in the early 80s um, after Reagan took office and began what we call the Dirty Wars or other Dirty Wars 2.0 uh, in Latin America, which we'll get to soon. But it was in 1983 in November that I traveled to Mexico and I lived there for about a year and a half trying to prepare myself to get the necessary language skills to travel by bus to Honduras, where I would then have to you know, cross a five mile demilitarized zone. Uh, at the time uh, in 1984, when I eventually did make the trip in January of uh, 1984, uh, my wife and I uh, uh, took uh, the buses uh, uh, through Latin America 
at that time, there were so many dictatorships. A Guatemalan dictatorship was probably the most horrendous. I mean, a million people. Um, El Salvador, uh, Nicaragua. I'm, I mean, uh, and then of course you had Argentina and Bolivia and, and the cocaine coup. I mean, uh, Latin America was it was it was it was it was like it was like going to the inferno. So we 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 traveled on buses, um, but we would we would not carry any literature uh, that would identify us, and we traveled as if we were tourists going down to Argentina in case we were asked because we had to pass through various iguanas or or what you call, um, uh, uh, in English, I'm struggling with it, uh, borders. Okay, so uh, to make a long story short, when I, we got there in 1984, um, the war was raging, and this is before the United States public really had a whiff of it, because Robert Perry really didn't do his good work until around 1985, and uh, the, the North scandal didn't uh, uh, break until 1985. I stayed for one year in Nicaragua, and I worked um, with Ernesto uh, uh, Cardinal, uh, who was then the head of the Ministry of Culture. Um, he was a, a Jesuit priest um, uh, who was a, 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 a member of Liberation Theology. I also worked with uh, Sister Mary Hartman, who was also a Liberation Theologist. And I worked um, for various embassies as well uh, to keep myself alive, teaching English to kids and their kids. Um, meanwhile, um, trying to write and find out as much about what was going on in Nicaragua at the time. Um, we had very little money and we, we saw the atrocities uh, you know, with my own eyes, uh, the war zones and the atrocities. Um, 30,000 Nicaraguans died uh, as a result of the Contra War, uh, which came to an end in 1992 prematurely with the election of Chamorro, uh, backed by the United States government. Uh, she was an old-time old oligarch. Um, uh, she lasted uh, four years, and Ortega took it back, and he, again, has just been re-elected for his third term, and um, even though the Constitution says that that's not possible, um, He's not giving up power, and he was elected, um, uh, supposedly. So, anyway, I left uh, at that part of the world, and I came back to the United States to work with refugee children, children that were coming back from war-torn Latin America. And uh, I began to become very, very familiar with what's going on in Latin America. And so I say that only to introduce myself. I uh, live in Ecuador right now, where I've lived for nine years. And so I have a good 12 years of uh, Central America, South America, and Mexico under my belt. And, um, and with that, um, you know, we can kind of launch in to uh, what we're, we're, we're dealing with here, Stephen, if you want to. Sure. Walk. Well, as you guys might have guessed here with Danny uh, joining me and with his uh, opening thoughts there, this is another installment in our International Fascism series. And again, as you might have surmised for this outing, we are returning to Latin America. Now, this was a subject we explored in the third installment of the series with an emphasis on the bizarre cults and secret societies used by U.S. security services throughout the Cold War down there. Now, with this one, we're going to bring things into contemporary times. Danny's going to explain the roles, corruption, organized crime, and what he defies as lawfare and how they destabilize Latin American nations. From there, we're going to look at contemporary developments in Brazil and El Salvador and probably many other places. 
Finally, we're going to consider how the reformers in Latin America are responding to uh, what effectively is an attempt by the United States to launch a new, um, not Phoenix program, Condor out there. Uh, get these death squad things confused sometimes, folks, I tell you. <laughs> and uh, the growing presence of China in Latin America and how that affects all the dynamics down there. In other words, it's going to be a wide ranging show, as are all the ones in this series. So here we go. So, all right, Danny, let's start with corruption and the role that it plays in Latin America. I mean, how does this play into the neoliberal playbook specifically? It's a, it's a very good question. And, and, uh, Everybody, if you talk to, well, not everybody, but if you talk to people, they'll say, well, you know, that uh, the United States uh, a system is a political system is so corrupt, or a Latin America system is so corrupt, or Mexican government is so corrupt. And the word corrupt, corrupt, corrupt is used consistently, and especially when referring to Latin America, corrupt government here, corrupt government there. Uh, these uh, corruption wouldn't exist in Latin America if it wasn't for fascism. Um, and uh, so really the problem is not corruption. Corruption is a symptom of fascism. Fascism is the problem. And fascism in South America is really an assortment of political parties and movements that's, that are modeled on mainly Italian fascism. Uh, now during the, between, between the wars, uh, the World War I and World War II of last century, um, there was a um, European uh, type of fascism that was uh, gaining influence in South America, but it really never gained much influence uh, other than the Falange movement out of Spain because of his association with the Catholic Church. But the Italian fascism had a deep impact on the region of Latin America um, because of Mussolini and um, because of his philosophy. Um, the original Italian fascism in the entire region that we can find, that we can note in Latin America was in 1934, there were at least six political parties in Latin America that were based on Italy's National Fascist Party. And that includes the Mexican gold shirts in North America. You know, there are all these shirts, there are the silver shirts, there's the black shirts, there's the white shirts. Well, in, the, in, the, in, in North America, the Mexican, Mexican fascists who were in support of the National Fascist Party in, in, uh, in uh, uh, Latin America were called the gold shirts. And they were based on Italian black shirt fascists. And um, they were, of course, based on corporatism. So uh, the ideology was not like a Hitler, Hitler type of anti-Jew, anti-type thing. It was basically corporatism, a hierarchy of corruption, okay, that started at the top through a managerial system called fascism. And it's an ownership system as well, but more than an ownership system, it's a managerial system. So as liberal democracy is a managerial system for capitalism, fascism is a managerial system for basically the kind of corruption you see in, in Latin America. So yes, in, in, in prior shows, we, you know, we don't have to go over it again. We went, we went through Argentina. Um, they had a fascist, fascist movement in the 1920s, and, but uh, Many thought Perón was a fascist, but I think I put to rest some of that in the first shows that we did. People can make up their own decision about Perón. Uh, Bolivia definitely had a fascist government in 1943 that supported uh, Hitler. And then, of course, went on uh, to have fascist government contemporary, which we'll talk about. Brazil is probably 
where fascism first appeared in 1922. And that's when 100 years ago is the anniversary of fascism in Italy. And it, it appeared uh, uh, pretty much the same time as Mussolini. And it was one of the most important fascist movements on the continent. And it was all caught up with which calls, which is what is called Brazilian integralism. Now, I'm not going to get into it or define it now, but again, it has, has to do with uh, fascism um, and the traditional story of, of religion or uh, religion, basically religion as a traditional story for the fascist movements, uh, which was integralism. Chile, of course, we know we saw Pinochet. Right? Many of the listeners are old enough are still alive, many are not. In Colombia, there's a definitive fascist government. It uh, 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 was put into play in 1995 by Bill Clinton, specifically in Plan Colombia, which was launched uh, according to Clinton and uh, his cronies to fight the cocaine wars, uh, when in all actuality, it was, uh, we, it was a cover to be used to kill as many union leaders, as many Marxists, as many labor leaders, as many civil rights leaders as possible, because uh, Colombia has always been a fascist country ever since the 1930s. Um, and it has a very strong German community, much like Argentina. Ecuador, maybe around 1948, not much of a connection to uh, anything in uh, Europe, really. Uh, Peru right now is, for listeners not fixated on, uh, on the back, on what, what America calls its backyard. And by the way, uh, referring to Latin America, uh, uh, it, uh, it's been changed. Biden changed it just within the last couple of weeks. He now calls uh, Latin America our front yard. Um, a meaning that he's back, that we're back, that uh, uh, we're going to continue to support uh, as much fascism as possible, that there will be no pink tide returning. And so he's been very clear that, uh, so in Peru right now, as a result of the sanctions against Russia, there's no fertilizer and there could be famine. I mean, uh, the Peru just elected a, what they call a communist candidate, um, Castillo. Um, he hasn't gotten any of his appointments through. Um, he's basically been able to accomplish nothing. He's totally paralyzed. Uh, the former ex-president is in prison. Her father was imprisoned. Uh, uh, Peru is just a mess. I, 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 I can't tell you how sad it is in Peru. Uruguay is probably one of the richest countries in, here in Latin America. And it's very, very cosmopolitan, very much based on Europe, uh, its architecture, it's uh, so forth and so on. Um, they had fascist party in 1940. And, and um, uh, they also had a resistance against what was called the fifth column of the fascist party in uh, Uruguay. And they saw some people arrested. Now, the thing about Uruguay that's so important, and people haven't seen the movie, uh, uh, I believe it's called Z. It's either Z or State of Siege by Gar uh, uh, Garvis, the director. Uh, it's a story about the Tupamaros, which was the liberation movement uh, in the 1970s uh, that emerged uh, to fight the dictatorship in Uruguay and uh, how the United States and the CIA uh, managed to uh, uh, kill all the Tupamaros. But before they were able to do it, um, one of uh, a former, I think a former LA cop, 
was down there working for the CIA and the Chupamaros made him confess everything on tape. So we know everything that they were doing down there from the tortures to the, it's what goes on in Latin America, let's say in, 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 in Uruguay at that time or in Argentina or in um, uh, let's just say Guatemala in 1982, goes on in every, Af in every Latin American country. So uh, all the thing they have in common is they have torture in common, killing of leftists, killing of Marxists, huge oligarchies that have been in power for hundreds of years. And of course, Latin America was colonized 500 years ago by Spain. And it's only been within the last couple of hundred years that they've even gained independence from Spain for Ecuador is only 162 years old. And uh, Panama was carved out of, uh, of, of, of Colombia by Sullivan and Cromwell and the, um, and the boys that worked there. Uh, uh, so much of what's gone on in Latin America really went on last century. And to, to this day, um, there is still an incredible struggle between the local oligarchy in a given country, say Bolivia, okay, and resistance movements to their austerity programs and their, their government policies. And that oligarchy is really an oligarchy that's run by the United States. So let me just take a minute here I'm not, without getting windy here. Uh, after World War II, many, many countries that uh, were considered third world countries in Africa and Latin America began to have revolts against their colonial masters. Algeria, of course, one knows about, uh, Vietnam, uh, the anti-colonial movement is what it was called after World War II in the 1950s. And this anti-colonial movement um, actually uh, ended with a, didn't end, but it, it included in 1955, a conference in Indonesia, in Bandung, Indonesia in 1955, um, all non-aligned nations, those that wouldn't go with the Soviets and those that wouldn't go with the United States, because you know, there's, a, there's a Cold War going on last century. And either you're, if you're, you're an African country, you're either with the US or you're with the Soviets, so you can't be in the middle. There's nowhere in the middle to go. All right. So um, many, many of the non-aligned nations who didn't want Soviet-style government, nor did they want a US-style government, especially in Africa and in Latin America, because Castro was sending, um, of, 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 well, later would send many of his people to Africa. So there was always a connection between Africa and, and, and uh, Latin America, and especially through the slave trade. In Bandung, Indonesia in 1955, many of these non-aligned uh, 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 nations looked to separate from the US and Soviet style economics and culture, and they looked at, for a new nationalism. They wanted a nationalism for their own country. Uh, you can, one can think of Nkrumah in, in, in Congo, for example, um, and, and many others. Okay. Well, this new nationalism was unacceptable to U.S. empire. Okay, and it was you know, this included the Latin American countries, not just Africa. It was unacceptable, unacceptable to the United States. They, 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 colonialism was what was acceptable, not becoming your standing on your own two feet or your own having your own nationalism. 
You were to be a colony of the United States. And if you were not a colony of the United States, you were a colony of the Soviet Union, in which case then we'd send our CIA out, we'd kill your leaders, and we'd do everything else we could to, to disrupt your country, which is what we, of course, we did throughout the anti-colonial period. Uh, one can think of the picture of John F. Kennedy crying as he receives the news that Lumumba, the revolutionary in, 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 in the Congo, has been murdered by the CIA. Okay. Well, um, this kind of overthrowing of governments uh, has been going on in Latin America since the beginning of last century. I think we invaded in 1909 in Nicaragua, I think was the first invasion that I can remember in Nicaragua. We then killed Sandino in 1932. Uh, Samosa was installed in 32. So all the last century, pretty much, you could say, belonged to the, to, 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 to the United States. It was the backyard. Well, it started to change. And um, the idea of resuming and not aligning the uh, initiative uh, that was launched in 1955 is now become news again. Uh, as of uh, the last month, the 13th, um, and Consortium News has a good article about this. There's now a, a look for a new integration of Latin America and online nations uh, in a new band type of, now this of course is scaring the United States to death. Because really what we're talking about here is the use of anti-Sovietism, anti-communism, and anti-Russianism to provoke war and hatred for the other, so to enslave Americans under the rule of fascist and international financial cartel rulers. That is my thesis. That is my thesis. And of course, to, to do this last century, all right, you know, you would overthrow countries in, in Latin America or use Latin American countries to do things for you, okay? Now what you're seeing in Ukraine is exactly what I witnessed in Nicaragua, okay? It's a proxy war. And the fascists, instead, but instead of in Nicaragua, when I was there, the, the socialists were in power, okay? And it was a proxy war. The United States were arming fascists and sending them across the borders of Honduras and, 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 and Costa Rica. Now you're seeing the same proxy war again in 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 in, um, in the Ukraine, uh, because you know the American American people have no stomach for sending troops anymore. So this is nothing new. This proxy war. Okay. Um, the Russia Gate was a very interesting aspect of all of this because as soon as Trump won, Russia Gate started hitting the screen. It's my thesis that Russia Gate was a way of softening up the American people for an eventual um, uh, invasion, possible invasion of Russia. And it's also my thesis that the Ukrainian invasion is a proxy war for an invasion of Russia to create a Yugoslavian type of breakup of countries for a further encirclement of China. Now, these are hypotheticals, but they're not just mine. They belong to a number of, number of people that are very, very respectable. Okay. Uh, we saw this in 1979. I mean, I remember in 79 when the Nicaragua San Anisas took power, uh, posters were coming out uh, in, in 1980, the Reagan administration saying that if we allow the uh, San Anistas to, to continue in power, uh, the Soviet Union is going to come through Mexico and invade California. And people believe this. That's the sad part. 
This is what people believe in. It's, it's, it's not just propaganda. It, it becomes part of people's belief systems. And therefore, they, they, they then authorize any kind of war that they think is possible. That's why you see so many people supporting the Ukraine war. The propaganda works. And now they're going to claim China's stealing our backyard. And that is what's going on now with the United States and China. And we'll get into that a little later, Steve. It said the real war that's going on is between China and the United States. And it's happening in Latin America, one place, okay? As well as within the countries in Latin America for many different reasons. So the fascist tendencies are in broad daylight in Latin America today. You can see it in the murderous opposition in Venezuela, in Brazil, in Argentina. Um, but opposition to US imperialism is also on the rise. And so from 2007 till 2016, we had what was called the red tide in Latin America. And the red tide referring to red, referring to basically socialism. We saw a number of countries in Latin America say to that we don't want to go with the Soviet Union style government. We, we don't want to go with the United States government and we don't want neoliberal politics okay anymore and neoliberalism is, is is capitalism on steroids is basically what it is okay and from neoliberalism we get into neo-fascism and that's where we're going with with this we go from neoliberalism to neo-fascism but neoliberal economics means austerity the selling off of, of public utilities um paying uh, imf first uh, everybody else gets a wage uh, there's no work uh, uh, it's total indebtedness, et cetera, et cetera. But this is all justified under the Monroe Doctrine that was passed in 1823. When President Monroe, he said, wait a minute, he said, we may have our independence from Europe, but we don't want Europe coming on over here to North America and to our backyard, Latin America. And that's what the Monroe Doctrine was all about. It was to keep Europe out of the North America and the South American continent. And from Monroe Doctrine in 1823 came Manifest Destiny. And the Manifest Destiny is the American exceptionalism. It's the American notion of progress, that Americans are the chosen people, that westward expansion is God-given right. And this was true when the pilgrims landed, you know, in, in, in the East Coast. The, the issue is to make your way out west, go out west, go out west. So, a manifest destiny means that Latin America belongs to us. And we determine its economic policies. We determine what it produces, how it functions, and where it is in the, wor in the world. And, and, and we're seeing the struggle right now. In fact, this red tide I was talking about for 2007, 2016, we saw Argentina. We saw Brazil. We saw Bolivia. We saw Ecuador. Um, we saw a, a, a Paraguay, ironically or not, it, it never gets mentioned in the news. Okay, and it, I think it was a total of eight countries uh, shifted to the left. And they basically nationalized their oil industries and they said, we're going to be using what we make to provide health care to our people and to raise people out of terrible poverty. I'm talking about poverty of five to $10 a day as a normal wage. I mean, really, really bad stuff. 
and an oligarchy in each country that you know lives and dines and luxury and they never there's two societies running parallel and this is very important for listeners to understand because the latin the, the fascism in latin america is exactly what you're seeing in the united states and what we saw in, in pinochet's chile is what is emerging in the united states it's the model coupled with hungarian clerofascism which we'll talk about soon so um if we're going to beat, you know, fascism, then we're going to have to have to understand what it is. So one, uh, Noam Chomsky's done a lot of good work, but in 1996 he wrote a, a book, and, and it was it, it was an article actually. It's called, it was called "The Culture of Fear," and then he said the U.S. To, is to blame for the paramilitary state in Colombia because, and this was a year after Plan Colombia was put into place. Okay, what was put into place was a paramilitary state. Under the auspices of going after drug dealers, the drug dealers worked with the government and they, the, the drug dealers killed the trade unionists and the Marxists and kept them free from all that kind of stuff. And they would be left alone, be allowed to traffic. And of course, individuals got, got rich and there's a whole bunch of corruption, but it all had to do with defeating communism and socialism and defeating people's need for a, great, a better society. Okay, so... Uh, uh, it's interesting that Chomsky cites Colombia's former Minister of Foreign Affairs, who explains that during the Kennedy administration, Washington, he said, and quote, took great pains to transform our regular armies into counterinsurgency brigades. Now, this is important for those who are uh, Kennedy conspiracy people, and you have been reading James DeGeneres or people like that, um, who are talking about. Uh, Kennedy's move toward anti-colonialism um, that may be true, it may not be true. Um, these brigades became known as death squads in Latin America, um, and they were started by Kennedy, though they didn't really take power until after his his murder. Um, but um, the Washington connection and third world fascism. It was written that the old colonial world was shattered during World War II, okay? And there were all these up, uprisings. And to contain the threat, the United States aligned itself with the elite, the military elements of every third world country that they could. And they created a national security state in all forms of authoritarian rule in the third world country. And this was directly after World War II all supposedly to contain the Soviet Union and the threat of communism, which of course was bullshit. It was all, it was all to make sure that the oligarchs were able to keep their riches and they wouldn't be taken from them. Okay, so the, uh, a military junta model was of course the one that I've been talking about and it's, it's been working well for about a hundred years, but there's another model that is now working because the military junta model is is no longer working. In other words, the United States can't, is not going to invade Venezuela. All right. Look, first of all, they'll get their ass kicked. U.S. Every citizen is armed in Venezuela. Okay. Number one. Number two. It's just not. It's not good optics. It's not. It's not good public relations. And the U.S. is trying to be everywhere as an octopus has its tentacles everywhere it can, from Ukraine to Latin America to Africa, because it's slowly falling apart. It's, 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 it's slowly falling apart. You can just see it. And so um, 
they don't want to invade these countries, but they want to make sure that they do not become socialist. And the ones, the eight countries that I said were socialist, pretty much all were overthrown, except in 2019, they overthrew Bolivia, but Bolivia uh, regained its independence um, due to a tremendous amount of courage, which we can talk about later, and has now uh, 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 gotten back its slot as one of those countries that uh, uh, is moving to the left. Uh, as I mentioned, Peru just had an election. They moved to the left. What that means, what it's going to mean, we don't know. Uh, Bolivia put the coup, the coup people in prison. Uh, now they're on pr in prison uh, for their lives for what they, they did in Bolivia. Argentina, it looks like it's going to be moving further to the left. Chile has rewritten his constitution. They elected a man by the name of Boric, who he was a student leftist, but it's turning out that he's a bit more neoliberal than leftist. So it's there's a lot of shaking and baking going on down here, a lot of movement, a lot of... But what the United States is using now to overthrow countries, and it's not just in Latin America is they're using what is called lawfare. And let, let me just give people an idea of what lawfare is because we had it in the United States after the Civil War. With the liberation of the slaves at the end of the Civil War in the US, you had a defeated oligarchy. That was the Confederacy. And so they quickly organized themselves to prevent African-Americans from using the vote to challenge their hierarchies. So they had tribunals and they had Supreme Courts and they basically used the law. And this is where we get Jim Crow from. Jim Crow is a result of lawfare. It is basically using the law, okay, to terrorize African-Americans and keep them permanently oppressed and stop them from voting. And that is what you see going on in the United States today. That's why the show that we are doing, the series is so important for listeners because we are seeing a repeat of what happened after, in, after 1865 in the United States going on and it is called lawfare and it's being handled, it is handled then by the Ku Klux Klan. It's now handled by fascists like Dan in the United States, but it's the same thing. It's the same thing. And in Latin America, it was used very, very, very well. Uh, Rafael Correa can't come back into this country. He has been sentenced to eight years in prison as a result of lawfare. Uh, the vice president of Ecuador is now in prison as a result of lawfare. Dilma, who is the president of Argentina, was um, sent through the mesh of lawfare. Basically, the way lawfare works, I mean, the idea is to embarrass your enemy to a point where they become extremely vulnerable to these baseless accusations. And then once they're weakened, they lose popular support, okay? And so what they do is they abuse existing laws to delegitimize and harm their adversary's public image. So they'll use free speech laws to say that, to say that you'll see, you see this in America, okay? The same thing, up becomes down, and down becomes up, and it's nonsense. They use legal procedures to restrain freedom, to intimidate people silence them, to influence public opinion, to negatively anticipate judgments, to curtail the right to an unbiased defense, to constrain public agents and bring retaliations against politicians who hamper legal defense mechanisms. 
in Ecuador, I think right now there's 20 people that have been driven outside uh, of the country and live in exile now since 2016 um, because of lawfare. Um, lawfare is now the most, the lawfare was responsible for putting Lula in Brazil in prison for four years. Now Lula's gotten out of prison and Lula is going to be running for president. And we have three important elections this year in Latin America. We've already had two important, but we've already had some important ones. One in Peru this year, so-called communist was elected. Uh, Nicaragua, Ortega was reelected. Whatever that means, it's reelected. And, um, and now we have three more elections. We're going to have an election in uh, 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 Excuse me. The other one I was thinking of was Zelaya. Uh, Zelaya in Honduras, his wife was elect, just elected last year. Uh, Zelaya was kidnapped by Obama after he became president of Honduras uh, under orders of Hillary Clinton and sat and dumped in the jungle. I mean, I, 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 anyway, his wife now is one of the presidents. So uh, Latin America is, 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 is kind of running... Is a little bit out of control. The United States doesn't really know what to do about Latin America. The best, and then I'll stop, the best definition of lawfare and its use, it's a form of war consisting of the use of the legal system against the enemy, okay, such as damaging or delegitimizing them, tying up their time, or winning a public relations victory, and thus lawfare Okay, has got to be in, include the corporate media. And in these countries, the first thing the oligarchs buy are all the media. So the oligarchs own all the media in Latin America. And then they use the courts to do the lawfare. And then they have their commentators that goes into the next tributary that goes on TV. And then that gets into the public's mind as propaganda. And then they have these phony trials. And then these trials, like in the Soviet Union, end up with people disappearing. And this is, this is, this is what's going on right now. This is what's happening in Latin America. Just one last thing. Rafael Correa's former ambassador uh, uh, observed uh, just recently when he was asked about the Biden administration, um, he said uh, basically that um, the Biden administration's foreign relations with Latin America will be the same as prior administrations in the United States, but more dangerous because they're better at speaking about cooperation than Republicans are. And so for this reason and this reason only, the use of what we call palabras bonitas or pretty words Okay, could make make the Democrats far more dangerous to Latin America than the Republicans. So let me stop at this point uh, and and see what other questions might have generated in your mind. Uh, would you want to get into the extent that uh, gangs and drug cartels have been used to compromise the governments of Latin America now? Yeah, certainly. Um, uh, the, uh, Goodness, let me let me get to where I need to get. 
um, so that I can give you a general idea of, of uh, kind of what's going on as you chill. You know, a lot of people, when they think about Latin America or Mexico or something, they think about Cancun or, you know, they may think about Belize or maybe, you know, cocaine coming through Central America. But it's oftentimes um, people don't really, really know very much about what, 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 what is going on on in Latin America in terms of, for example, what you just asked in gangs. It is hard to prove. Well, let me start out this way. Let's start with El Salvador. El Salvador is a country that probably is worse off now than it was when it was in the Civil War. And it's very tragic for me to say that because I have a very good friend that lives who is a taxi driver, and I've been there many, many times. Um, <clears throat> why, what's going on in El Salvador? Well, you have the MS-13. Now, the MS-13 is uh, the Salva Salvatruchas, and they are a gang. I have to understand that El Salvador is a coffee-growing country that's been neglected for you know, hundreds of years by oligarchs, where the people, the peasants, are still living on in medieval conditions on the land. I mean, there's no industry. Uh, many of these Latin American countries were prohibited to start their own industry in the 1930s and 1940s so that they would be dependent on imports from the United States. That's how the Nestle Corporation got into Latin America. And that's how many, I go to the store right now and almost most of the products are, are from the United States. Okay. Um, and of course it costs a great deal more because we're subject to a tariff. And so the people here are, are, paying, for, are, are paying for United States products. Uh, I go to a local hardware store here and it's really an affiliation of ACE. Okay, you just don't know it. But then you look at the brand, you start seeing ACE all over the place. So this is, these are large transnational corporations that are taking over the world. They're not kind of confined to one country, nor are they confined to one economic hemisphere, nor are they defined one continent. These are transnational cartels. And that gets back to something that we listeners might want to remember from the first edition that we talked about, and that was the Pomeroy Act that was passed back in the early before in the early teens of the 1900s that allowed these huge cartels to invest overseas. They were not allowed to invest overseas until they became so big and were able to buy out the politicians. That's what Teddy Roosevelt's whole thing was, was breaking up the cartels, breaking up the cartels. Well, he broke them up in the United States. They went overseas and they supported Hitler and, and, and Franco and, 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 and Tucson and Krupp and, 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 and all the industries over there. Okay, So uh, transnational corporations are still in control, only they're in far more control today than ever before uh, due to tr track and trace technology. Uh, due to, 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 to facial recognition, due, due to basically what I call a, 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 a form of capital accumulation, which, which we can call repressive capital accumulation. And what that piece basically means is that you, you have to, uh, there's too many people on earth, they don't have enough money, they can't buy things. And so uh, many of them have to be eliminated. Uh, in many ways of elimination, either physical or prisons, 2.2 million in the United States, my God. Or just disappearing them, or 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 or, or, 
or maybe there's some virus that come by and kill them or so whatever happens there's too many people in the world and so Capitalism has entered into what's called a crisis of overproduction. They've produced too many goods and there's not enough people to buy them. So when people started stopped getting a good wage in the 1970s, they started borrowing in the United States, Europe, Latin America, all over the world. And that's kept the, the, the global economic system of capitalism going, which has just been pure debt from the IMF all the way down to the, the local car debt, uh, Bank of America has kept this whole capitalist system internationally going. And it's not working. It's obviously not satisfying the needs of 7.5 billion people. Okay. It's, it's not working. Uh, and, and so in Latin America, it, it, it's even worse. I mean, it's just, it's, it's so poor. There's no investment. The only investment is in police. The only investment is in technology and in what the United States says they should invest in, like the new base, military base that was set up here four years ago after being kicked out by Rafael Correa, and they came back only, it's not called a military base anymore. And it's no longer located on the mainland, it's now located on an island in the Galapagos, which is a much better strategic area for them to put planes, bombers, and any other kind of proxy equipment they need in case there's an invasion necessary in Latin America. You asked about gangs. The MS-13 gangs were started in El Salvador as a result of dislocation and dispossession. There was no work after the war. There was nothing. It's just the war ended and people turned in their guns and there was no economy and there was, there was no country and there was no families were killed. 70,000 people died in El Salvador in the war that we waged against them. And we waged that war under the Reagan administration. We funded it, we proxied it, uh, we supported it all the way. And we lost it, just like we've lost every war since World War II. Um, uh, People were dislocated, young people didn't know what to do. Talking now uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the early 90s, um, some of them came over to the United States and they started a gang called the MS-18. And the MS-18 was a gang started in the United States to protect them from the, the Crips and the Bloods because these are newly arriving El Salvadorian immigrants who don't speak any English. And they're coming into South Central LA, and because that's where they're sent, they're, 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 that's the closest place. Uh, they're not putting cages at the border like they are now. Things are far more worse now. They're coming in, and 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 they're you know signing their children up into public school. And I happen to teach second grade in South Central LA, and half my class was El Salvadorian, and you know I had students from Central America, and I have other half class was black, and. Um, and, and there was a lot of tension between uh, Blacks and, 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 and uh, Central American uh, newly arriving immigrants. And so they started the MS-18, and the MS-18 became a huge gang in the United States. And then it became the subject of a RICO uh, indictment. And, but many of its members, much like Escobar, many of his members had, had, had escaped back down to 
to to El Salvador, and so the whole 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 issue was does El Salvador have an extradition treaty with uh, with the United States, which was the same problem that Colombia couldn't extradite uh, 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 cartel members because they didn't have a treaty, and every time that they wanted a treaty, Escobar would blow up a government building or assassinate a presidential candidate, and the same thing is going on in El Salvador. Uh, same thing seems going on in El Salvador, and so there's 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 just more and more people are going to prison. And the prisons are just getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and um, now the prisons are there's so many people in prison that the current president of the government of El Salvador is by a man by the name of Bukele. He was the mayor of uh, San, uh, of El Salvador, San, San Jose, El Salvador. Became. How did he become president? He made a deal with the gangs. He made a deal with the gangs. He said, look, he said, there's a merchant area in El Salvador where merchants come every day and they pull out their goods and they set up open air markets and they have like 550 stalls and stuff. And the gangs are running a protection racket. And they go to every one of the stalls. They say, you pony up a certain amount of money a month, you know, we'll, we'll kill your entire families. And they mean it. They kill entire families. Right? They don't, they don't, this is not, you know, we'll, we'll punch you. It's saying so um, Bukele, so the country is out of control. I mean, it's totally out of control. And the United States, of course, is continuing to send military money to the, the military, the money to the military, the police forces, and training in the School of the Americas to put down a, So this is the repressive capital accumulation model. In other words, these people can't produce anything. There's nothing, they can't consume anything. There's no, they, there's no, there's no production, no consumption. So uh, how do you make, you make money? Well, you set up prisons for profit. That's a good way to make money. Go to the stock market, take a look at how they're doing in the United States. Uh, repression is basically going to be a big moneymaker in the future. Uh, Palantir's Clearview is one, one example of tracking and tracing being used all over the world right now, including in the United States, sucking up every bit of information people throughout the entire world. And then, of course, the repression externally will happen as we have to fight the Russians, fight the Soviets. They're stealing our elections. And that's, that's what I was saying. Russiagate was a, a good prelude. But once Clinton lost, they needed some, some, some prelude. And, of course, Russiagate was a great prelude because then they could go back into Cold War 2.0 and they could satisfy all their military contractors like Rand and Raytheon and Lockheed. And they could get a, a, this Cold War thing and then they could control all the colonial countries again, but it's not working. In the prisons, MS3, well, let me put it this way. The prison systems in Latin America are controlled by the prisoners. Not in the way they are in the United States. They are controlled by the prisoners. Okay. Completely controlled. Prisoners, there are there are there are two people right now in El Salvador wanted in the United States under RICO that have been convicted in Ausentia who are walking freely in the streets of El Salvador right now, as I'm speaking to you. Bukele will not send them to the United States. Bukele said, you, you, I'll make you a deal. I'll work with you. Right? 
you just lay off certain sectors of the city and you want to kidnap and torture and deal with cocaine, do all that, that's fine. But I need a low body count or I can't get reelected. Because you see, the body count in El Salvador for homicides is so high. All right. <laughs> Nobody trusts any politician, of course. So Bukele says, I'm going to run on making El Salvador the safest country in Central America. And I'm going to need your help, gangs, all of you. Well, what happens is MS-13 in El Salvador controls MS-18 in Los Angeles. And they are controlled through the prison systems. So MS-13 wants somebody in Los Angeles to do something to a Norteño, let's say, which is a, a, gang, a gang member in LA, LA County or something, okay? Um, uh, they're head honchos. Uh, in both countries, it'll make sure that that job gets done, whatever that job is. So they work in tandem like that. Well, Bukele came to them and said, look, you know, you guys are you know, they're more powerful than the people I work with. And I want power too, but I don't want the kind of power you have. I don't want that, that flashy cars and stuff. I want political power. So give me a low body count. If you can give me a low body count, okay, I'll lay off of your cocaine trafficking, I'll lay off of this, I'll lay off of that, this legitimacy, that illegitimacy, but give me a low body count. So they gave him a low body count and he got elected. And um, how, how much lower the body count was, I don't have figures in front of me, but they gave him a low body count, they worked with him, they gave him a low body count. He said, in, in exchange, what I'll do for you is I will give you advantages inside the prison. I'll make sure that you get the Al Capone treatment. You know, if you want to turn your, one of your wards into you know, a whorehouse, you just go ahead and do it. You do whatever you want inside the prison. All right, You just make sure you get your little body count. You tell your homeboys that are out of prison out there to stop killing people. Okay, And give me a little body count so I can get elected. And then I'll work with you guys. And you, we'll, we'll work on what illegitimate activity you can do and what kickbacks you can give and what, what you can't do and what you can't give. Well, that just broke down. And about two weeks ago, 67 people were murdered in one day in El Salvador. Did they belong to a gang? No. Um, were they drug dealers? No, none of them were. They were all workers. And they were all different kinds of workers. Some were restaurant workers. One was a waitress. Another one you know, was parking cars. Another one worked in a car wash. They were average everyday people. They killed 67 in one day. And that was the message that was given to Bukele. Okay. We don't like what you're doing. And so your body count just went up 67. And if you want to continue to see your body count go up, because we'll kill everybody. We don't care. We'll kill everybody. We don't care. Kids, children, grandmothers, and no difference to us. We'll make your body count go up. Unless you do what we say. Now, we don't know what Bukele's does. It's just been a couple of weeks. Okay. But we do know one thing. He, his soaring arrests have overwhelmed the prisons to the point where there's now the imprisonment of tens of thousands of people. I mean, I mean the comparison, we have 2.2 million people in a country of 325, 330 million people. 
El Salvador is a country of you know hundreds of thousands of people. Okay, they have tens and tens of thousands of people in prison. This is the surplus population that can never work. They will never consume. They can't. They can't help capitalism, so I mean, you know, put them in prison. But it's 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 coming out. It's 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 going out of control. And now Bukele, I think he's losing control of the criminal actors. He's got to deal with the Peronis cartel, the MS-13, the Barrio 18, the MS-13, the Texas cartel, the Barrio 18. I mean, I could go on and on in the groups that exist in El Salvador that are connected directly to Chicago and to Los Angeles. They are far more dangerous than Crips and Bloods. And they are working not just in, these, in, in El Salvador. They are working in other countries in Latin America as well, one especially in Colombia. In Colombia, of course, source of all cocaine. Okay. Uh, you know, Colombians were basically told by the United States in 1995, well, all the cocaine you want, just make sure you deposit it in the United States banks because our economy is not doing too well. And um, make sure that you just make sure that the country doesn't go socialist. Because if Colombia goes socialist, all of Latin America will. Colombia is the, is, is the one that they're scared to death of. So the repression in Colombia within the last year has been absolutely incredible. And Colombia has an election this year. And who is running for election this year? A leftist, okay? A former member of FARC. FARC was a, or is a, revolutionary group that existed as existed for close to 60 years of fighting fascists within Colombia. Uh, now, what, what, what anybody ever think, thinks about FARC is another issue, but they have been uh, basically the, quote, Marxist um, contingent that for 60 years have been fighting, but they made a truce years ago, not many, or FARC made a truce that they would lay down their guns and stop their 55, I think it was a 55-year war at that time, if they could come back into civil society and be able to start a party. And so they, they laid down their guns. Many of, many of them would not, but a great deal of them did. And they came back into civilian life. And there's been at least 12 to 13, 14 of them been murdered leaders since then. Um, they, were, they, were, they, were, they were brought into a ruse. Okay, they gave up their arms. They don't have a political party, okay? And now they're being killed, and um, and Colombia is uh, one of the murder capitals of the world. And um, the United States uh, is still promoting Plan Colombia, and Colombia is the largest recipient of United States funding in all of Latin America. It is the Israel of Latin America. Do you want to um, briefly? Uh, and I know it wasn't something I had. Uh... Put into the show questions, but uh, do you have anything on DynCorp's role there? Because I know they were initially a pretty big part of Plan Columbia. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, too, was there not like um, an ongoing lawsuit against them um, in Colombia because of what some of the stuff they had sprayed on the crops down there or something to that effect? No, I do not have any information on 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 on, on, on Dincor, Dincor, however you pronounce it, um, and the relationship with Colombia. And the reason I don't is because there are so many of these groups that I mean, you would have to be a master of the alphabet on the ten dimensions to you know 
the ACE and the REP and the TIZ and, and you go crazy. So what I try to focus on is I look at DynCorp Dine as a general uh, private military contractor. And so then when I talk about private military contractors, I might speak about DynCorp if they come up, but I don't usually focus on the individual actors within the generality. I'm more concerned with the generality. And so I can tell you there are private military contractors working inside Colombia right now. Absolutely. Training, all the training that, that the Colombian military and the Colombian paramilitary. Yeah, if I'm had. not mistaken, I mean, I, I think Plan Colombia was really the first time we had, um, you know, at least formally used a lot of these uh, modern private military companies as a big part of U.S. foreign policy. Of course, that's right. Clinton. I mean, everybody thinks that this, you know, didn't happen until after 9-11 with like Blackwater and what have you, but no, uh, DynCorp, however it's pronounced, I'm probably butchering it actually, Danny, you're probably right, but um. Yeah, I mean, it was already being contracted for Plan Columbia, I mean, back in 1995. And then, of course, they also were used um, in Kosovo. Um, and in both, you know, instances, I mean, there was a lot of controversy, which has been covered up, uh, of course, in Kosovo and other parts of uh, the Balkans. I mean, they were deeply implicated in um, uh, trafficking minors uh, for sex. Yes, there was a movie made about a woman. Yes, uh, yes, yes, yes. There was a, yeah, I mean, it was a woman who had worked for Dying Course. She was a local cop from the United no, States. No, they have been sued. I can tell you that they have been Yeah, sued. they've been sued oh, quite oh, a few times. And like oh, I said, I'm, I'm pretty sure there was an ongoing lawsuit in Colombia against Dying Corps for spraying the crops with something that had given some of the farmers cancer or something to that effect. I'm not as sure on that one as I am on the uh, the stuff with Kosovo, but I know that there was some kind of lawsuit related to something along those lines in well, as well. So, well, you I know, know there's we, a lot of PMCs out there, Danny, but like Dying Core, along with like Eric Prince and like the you know remnants of Blackwater, are kind of like in a league of their own. <laughs> no, they are, they are, but the category itself has really got to be understood. To be, I mean, one can reason inductively, you know, from Dying Core up to the category or from the category down deductively, however one, but the category must be understood because remember the Safari Club in 1976 was started after the hearings were held on the CIA. And they Bush had to get these these, these they, Bush had to create a private CIA, and he used Saudi Arabia, and they created a Safari Club, and the Safari Club was the beginning of the private military contractors. They became noted and notable in American jargon and in American culture and life. Okay, not until the early 1900s where the, many of uh, in 1990s when many of them actually became legal you know and took out licenses and became legal and 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 um, and uh, many of them were that were operating as mercenaries years ago and now they have become legal and so uh, no but that's the only information i have i do know that pmcs of course were used as proxies you know both to train the FDN to go into Nicaragua and El Salvador, of course, to, to train the fascists to go to and, and, and his party. Um, but yes, so um, I don't know where that left us. 
Oh, well, yeah, just, you know, I wanted to throw that in because we had, uh, you know, I obviously I think PMCs will probably be a big, they've already been a big point of discussion in the South African show, and I'm sure we'll get into them in the uh, the closing one with Peter Thiel and all that other stuff. Um, I do have to point out, though, really, I mean, uh, the contemporary PMCs really go back to the British with WatchGuard, which, I mean, was essentially used for a proxy war in Yemen, and then later, of course, what is it, Oman, I think, Oman, oh, shoot, I can't remember the... Um, Oh, the one Gulf state, but I mean, basically, Kini Meaning more or less um, has run the military of that country for what, like 40 or 50 years. And it was specifically that one guy, the white Sultan, I mean, who had basically been the commander of all the elite forces there for just decades and decades. But I mean, yeah, it was a model that was uh, really, I think, imported in mass. Uh, I mean, after the effect the British had had with it and some of their. Uh, remaining vassal states around the world. Well, you know, in your, your, your show on South Africa is a very illuminating show and, and, and you have much more knowledge about, you know, the, the, the Anglo, the Anglo, the British type of connections to, to these things. So, you know, I would, I would, I, I wouldn't hesitate to agree with you. I have, I don't have that kind of knowledge that you have about that type of thing. Um, but I do know that private military contractors are obviously, you know, have replaced the United States military, basically, um, in the world. Um, in El Salvador, just to get back to it, um, uh, let me just give you a quick story. You're in El Salvador. It's November 27th, 2018. You're a police operative, and you're sitting with some of your buddies at a fast food chicken restaurant, okay, in the city of San Salvador. And you're tracking a guy, and his name is Vicente Ramirez. Anyone you want to Ramirez is a businessman. He's a community leader. He's part politician, and, and governors, governor, government investigators believe he's also part gang affiliate. So as part of their investigation, the attorney general's office, they've tapped Ramirez's phones a couple of times, and sure enough, who's shown up? MS-13. Well, they have 30,000 members in El Salvador. Okay, MS-13 is huge. It's the largest street gang in the country. So um, they're tracking the same thing. They want to, you know, basically what we going to see up to. Well, all of a sudden, some people come up. Some people look like they're gang members come up. Line is a little fuzzy, but looks like there's been some passage of something to somebody to somebody else. And sure enough, after the bus, which eventually went down, um, they did bust him um, for taking protection money um, to make sure that all those uh, merchants that I just told you about were, uh, were not screwed with. There's 40,000 informal vendors, and they're obviously not protected by the police, and they're not protected by the military. So what do you do if somebody comes up to your stall and says you pay a thousand a month or we'll kill you? What do you do? <laughs> so they're making, yeah, they're making deals. And they're not just making deals in El Salvador, they're making deals everywhere. AMLO's making deals with them too in, in Mexico. Now, what kind of deals he's making, I can't say. But he did do one thing that we do know. He caught El Chapo's son. I think this was a couple of years ago, maybe a year and a half ago. They sent a police contingent out, you know, military contingent out, and they went to Siloa. 
And they got El Chapo's son and they busted him. And they brought him back to the Mexico City police station. And El Chapo, who was, was is in police custody in the United States, obviously, sent the message out. Same type of message, El Salvador. We'll kill everybody everywhere unless you let him go. We're bigger than you are. We're bigger than your police forces. We're bigger than your militaries. We run your country. We run your jails. We run your institutions. We negotiate your trade agreements. And we do it all in collaboration with the United States because the United States gives us advantages that we need. So, for example, in the United States, in New Jersey, where a couple of MS-18 prisoners are locked up, um, they're now getting a couple of extra hours of sunshine. They don't negotiate for things as small as that. Uh, they already own the country, so they don't need that. So there you go. When it comes to... Uh, it's called sub-fascism by Chomsky when he was uh, writing with his, his buddy Edward Her Herman. They called it uh, sub-fascism. I mean, it's a very good way of thinking of it. It's client fascism. And so it's contrary to the classic nationalistic mode of fascism of the 20s and 30s in Europe in the 20th century. Here's the quote. The economics of sub-fascism involves a rapid shift to a wide open door to foreign trade and investment, tight money, which means austerity, and social welfare budget cuts, which is austerity. That is the economic policies called for by the interests of the dominant power and its institutional affiliates. And who are they? The IMF and the World Bank. So priority is always given to servicing the foreign debt. So first the country is loaded with debt, and then they they sit back and they and then they have to pay the debt at incredible interest rates, okay. And if they don't pay the debt, and then they have and then they also have to sell their government uh, 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 services. So, for example, the postal service that existed in Ecuador up until last year is gone. We no longer have a postal service. It just disappeared. Why did it disappear? Well, it just didn't disappear because the workers didn't want to go to work. It didn't disappear because people need, didn't go get letters. It disappeared because FedEx and uh, transnational corporations, DHL, okay, they control the movement of documents throughout the world. They don't. So, so well, I mean, you know, another thing too, I got to point out about the attempts to get away with the postal service. I mean, the arguments usually made that a lot of it is used for commerce, which nowadays, which is a fair point. But conversely, I mean, a lot of uh, just, you know, average people are actually now earning a living off of e-commerce and doing things through the postal service as well. So, I mean, I think in a way it's actually uh, a major attempt to uh, clamp down on, you know, independent entrepreneurship. Uh, well, it's, it's, it, 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 looking at it from, from again, from, from the, the, the assumptions that I make at the beginning of, of, of our series, and that is that there is an international fascist movement growing in the world today, and that it, it's apparent in certain fascist countries, we've been looking at a few of them. Um, uh, for, 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 the, for, for example, for in Ecuador, the Postal Service uh, 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 was gotten away with because 
They don't want any government employee. They're anti-government. See, this is where neo-lib this is where neoliberalism becomes neo-fascism. The neoliberals in the United States have been pounding their fists since the 1970s about government interference, government interference, and regulation when they love government interference and regulation if it's for their part. But they've been yelling and screaming about how it's bankrupting the nation and so forth and so on. Okay. And, 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 and uh, uh, the Latin American sub-fascist project in keeping in, in terms with what they're told to do by the United States is using the same thing. We don't want any government employment. Everything needs to be privatized. Everything has to be privatized. Only the private sector can provide for the American people. No public services. So that's why we don't have a post office. But it's also the same reason that many in many countries like Carlos Slim, for example, who owns, I think God knows how much of the New York Times he owns that now, but he's a damn major shareholder. He's from Mexico and he, and he, he owns major media across the world. Okay, because that's the first thing that they buy is the media, because that's how they control the people. And once they get the media, they get the banks and they get the media. And then once they get the banks and the media, then they have lawfare, they put their people in. And, and then they have basically what we call sub fascist countries. So under client fascism, the constituency or the leadership shifts to foreign interests. So under client fascism, in Brazil, for example, the interests don't have to do with the Brazilian people. It has to do with the United States. So the shift of the leadership shifts to the United States. Bolsonaro just becomes the puppet, same as Pinochet. But, but it also has created, the sub-fascism has created a new kind of friendly face fascism. And this is, in a book that was written in 1980, I understand it's been 42 years, is a fellow by the name of Bertram Ross Gross wrote a really good book. He used to be a, a, on the President's Council of Economic Advisors from 1946 to 52. And he talked about basically America entering into a phase of a, basically a friendly form of fascism. What I call chrome-plated fascism, nice and shiny. You can't really see the bumps or the warts or anything. It portrays two conflicting trends in the United States. It's a slow and powerful drift toward the greater concentration of powerful wealth, okay, and repressive big business, big government partnerships, which we've seen, for example, in the United States, and we definitely see in Latin America. And then this drift leads down the road to a new and even more manipulative form of corporative serfdom. And it's the corporative serfdom that's the phase friendly fascism helps distinguish. Because this is really where the world is in the United States, we're moving into a situation of corporate serfdom. There are people that will never work in the United States again, or will never work. There's no jobs. There's no jobs being created. They're being eliminated. And so in, in, how does this work then in Latin America? Well, of course, manifest destiny. We get to make all the decisions. For your listeners, I'm going to just give one story, and then I'll stop and let you take the lead on this. I want your listeners to understand that in 1954 was when the first, wasn't the first, Sandino in Nicaragua was really probably the first. But in 1954 was the, when, Sullivan and Cromwell and the Dulles brothers 
uh, got the go-ahead from Truman to overthrow the Arbenz government in Guatemala in 1954. Okay, what had happened is at the it was called Operation PBS or Operation PB Success. You can look it up. People can look it up. They'll find it. Operation PB Success, Guatemala in 1954. Guatemala was sick and tired of being under the thumb of colonialism, as I had mentioned. And they decided in 1954 that they didn't want the Soviet Union, they didn't want uh, the United States. So they elected Jacobo Arbenz to, be, to replace the military dictator, Carlos Armas, who the US had installed. And Arbenz was an advocate for land reform and he was loved by the poor. The poor people loved him. The wealthy hated him. So the CIA tried to bribe him. And when, they, when, they, when the CIA, there's a book that's written by, I can't remember, what's his name? He wrote the book, it's called Confessions of an Economic Hitman, John Perkins. Uh, John Perkins used to work doing this. Uh, he'd go down to the Latin American countries on behalf, he doesn't say he worked for the CIA because he can't. Uh, otherwise, he wouldn't be able to publish his book. He can't say he, the CIA did it, but it's obvious. He used to go down to Latin America and he was going to president's office and he would say, hi, Mr. President, how are you today? I'm fine. Like the president of, of, of Panama, Trujillo's, for example, in the 60s, went to his office. How are you doing? They were good friends. I'm fine. How are you, John? Good. Family? Good. Are you fine? Good. Listen, Trujillo's, you know, the company I work for, they told me that I, to make you two offers. I, I hate to do this, but I'm gonna, I've got to do it. It's my job. In my right hand, and he opens it, I have what's called plata, which means silver in Spanish. Then he says, in my left hand, and he opens it, he says, I have plomo, which in Spanish means lead. He said, they asked me to ask you, which one do you want? In other words, stop working for the poor people in your country. Stop passing policies that help people feed themselves, educate themselves, and take care of their health. You either want the silver or you want the lead. Trujillo said, I'm not taking the silver. So that's what they do. They first, they come in, they try to bribe. When they can't bribe, then they send what Perkins called, they send them the jackals. And that's what they did to Trujillo in, 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 uh, uh, before Noriega. And they sent in the jackals and, and they blew up an airplane that he was in. They blew up the airplane that Jaime Waldos was in in, in, in 1981, the uh, president of Ecuador. Um, many, many uh, uh, airline uh, crashes that occurred in the 70s and 60s for CIA. They used to live, use the shotgun in the 1950s. I don't know if you remember that. In the 70s, the air, airplane crash was the one that was, uh, was used most. But the interesting part of the 1954 coup in Guatemala, so to get to cut the point here, okay. Uh, they, they eventually did get rid of him, but they needed the help of Edward Bernays. Now, if your listeners don't know who Edward Bernays is, Edward Bernays is, is, is the godfather of Madison Avenue. He is a godfather of advertising. And if, if people want to know more about him, they can go see um, uh, Curtis's documentary, uh, 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 
century itself. Century itself. Okay, so they needed Edward Bernays. Now Bernays has done great work for, for corporations ever since he got women to start smoking and then before in, in, in 1918 or 1919. So, so he's the chief propagandist at this time for the United Fruit Company in 1954. Well, the United Fruit Company is known to 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 grocery shoppers in the United States now as Chiquita Banana. But it's really the United Fruit Company. Well, it was then, okay, and it operated very much like um, you had mentioned earlier, the uh, southeastern, uh, South India. Uh, what did you call it? Uh, the, the the British of uh, the South India. Uh, the the uh, East India Company. Yeah, the East India Company. They, 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 the United Fruit operated the same. They had their own uh, the Pinkertons, their own militaries. They, they didn't rely on the government. So anyway, so so Bernays is, is he's the head of United Fruit, and United Fruit's got all the roots down in Latin America. They get these the bananas and all the, the stuff. I mean, the United States wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the, the, the raw materials of Latin America. It wouldn't exist, and of course, it wouldn't exist if they hadn't sold half of Texas in 1847. But that's a whole other thing. Okay, um, so. Uh, the United Fruit Company uh, says they came to the United Fruit Company, CIA, and said, look, you know, well, we want to get rid of this guy. And they said, uh, we have a guy that we, we that says he'll do it. His name is his name is Major General Smedley Butler. Well, you'll know Major General Smedley Butler from the white, uh, the, the, the plot to kill Roosevelt. Yeah, the business well, this, plot. Right. But at this time, he's a U.S. Marine Corps. And it's, and it's 1935, and the U.S. military is used to dealing with resistance to American corporations through violence overseas. So Guatemala is a case study in this regard because our our Benz does this Reform Act and and uh, Decree 900. He expropriates rural farmland from oligarchs. 75 70 percent of the land was in two percent of the landowners owned 70 percent of the land. So he expropriates the rural farmland in vast acreage from United Fruit, and he starts handing it out to workers so they can have their own property. He just redistributes to poor peasants, okay? Uh, and, they, and But he compensates United Fruit and the people at the fair market value at the time. But the arrangement wasn't acceptable to United Fruit or their backers in Washington or the CIA. So they go to our bins, they try to first buy, but buy them off for $2 million. And they asked him, turn it to land reforms, we'll pay you $2 million. $2 million. He refused. And so they went to Truman. And Truman, of course, by this time, had already thrown the New Deal of the toilet. And, um, and Truman said, kill him. Or Eisenhower, actually, kill him. Um, Eisenhower had intimate ties with the United Fruit Company. That was an explosive time. But it was the Eisenhower administration, Truman threw the New Deal in the toilet. Eisenhower actually created the military industrial complex, either through his negligence by allowing it to happen or by actually, you know, supporting it. But uh, John Foster Dulles represented United Fruit at his law firm, Sullivan and Cromwell. And of course, his brothers, the head of the CIA. So you got the brothers, you got the United Fruit, you got Bernays. Okay, who's going to handle all the public relations inside the United States to show how we're overthrowing evil dictatorship that they want to take the U.S. down and, and, and create a Soviet bloc in Latin America. 
So um, he figured if he couldn't brand Arbenz a communist, he could at least inflate the threat posed to pose to Guatemala. So he did. And when he wrote in his biography, he wrote his biography, Bernays, it's called Biography of an Idea. He argued that the Guatemalan leader, quote, consider the anti-communist movement subversive and openly accepted the Reds as allies. And as a result, he had to do what he had to do. And he's proud of what he did for United Fruit and its owner and at the time and president, which was Sam Zemurite. They all worked. Brazil, same thing. Kennedy orchestrated a military coup in Brazil in Latin America shortly after assassination. Actually, the, the, the the plans were put into effect before the assassination, but the coup took place after Kennedy was assassinated, calling into question whether he would have supported um, But we see the same thing um, in Honduras. Now, if listeners don't know, last week, the former president of Honduras was extradited to the United States and will serve the rest of his life in a high security prison. Why? Because the United States allowed him to sell 500 tons of cocaine for 20 years. He was, a head, he was a president of Honduras until Zelaya's wife beat him in election three months ago. And that's when the U.S. moved on him because they don't want him to talk. So they did the same thing they did to him that they did to Noriega, that they, that they wanted to do to, 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 to they did to uh, uh, because Colombian cartel members, get him into the U.S. and get him into a prison as fast as you possibly can so they don't talk. So then they start telling about the stories about how the Americans are involved in all this. And so this has just happened and a new president was elected and um, they also arrested the head of the national police chief. That national police chief was arrested, Juan Carlos Bonilla, El Tigre. He was extradited last week to the United States. The brother of the former president of Honduras up until two months or three months ago is serving life like uh, uh, in, the, in a United States prison, just like uh, 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 Salinas's uh, brother Raul, the former president of Mexico, not Raul, but his brother was. But Raul's sitting in there. Why are they all sitting in the United States prisons? So they won't talk. That's why Hernandez served two terms from 2014 to 2022. And uh, I, I mean, the amount of corruption. So when you say, tell us about corruption, one has to ask themselves, is this corruption? Yes, of course it's corruption, but how is it allowed to take place? And then the only answer is there's only one way. Somebody has got to let it take place. And that's why it's fascism. It's run like a cartel. Latin America is run like a cartel. And I would not be surprised if the cartels end up owning a great deal of this continent. Already the poppy fields are being grown in multiple countries in Central America right now. Okay. And then um, one other thing I'd like to share with you just uh, 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 something about El Salvador uh, that you might find in, uh, interesting. Oh, that assassination spree that occurred was actually 87 people were killed just at random, just, just, just unbelievable. Um, 
But here's here's the rub, and then I'll stop because you asked about gangs. So here it is. Colombian gangs now don't want even want Colombia anymore. Okay, Insight Crime, which is a, a publication I read consistently, it's from Latin America, reports that criminal networks are now producing cocaine in Europe. Okay, Colombia has moved their operation to Europe. And what proportion of cocaine consumed in Europe is produced in European laboratories? Well, this guy says the short answer is we do not know. We know that there are 58 illicit cocaine processing facilities were reported in Europe between 2018 and 2020 run by Colombians. Okay, they have master chemists, right? And we know that 10 of those were estimated by the Dutch to produce 100 to 200 kilos a day, which amounts to five. 5.6 tons per month, multiplied by 10, you're getting 56 tons total. And the guy goes, what's the advantages of processing cocaine in Europe rather than Latin America? Well, the chemicals available in Europe to produce cocaine come straight from the industrial producers. And they have to meet EU regulations. So the, the precursor chemicals are, are better quality. So the cocaine they make in Europe is far better than the cocaine they can make in Colombia. In contrast, the portion of chemicals used in Colombia are made in illicit labs. Sometimes they use gasoline or whatever to get the shit out. Secondly, some of the equipment that they seize in Europe has been manufactured in such a professional manner. It's so well soldered, soldered, soldered every part manufactured using high precision machines and so on. And this, again, is in contrast to Colombia, where the equipment is a bit makeshift and you know, your production tools for coke are sometimes made from oil barrels. Thirdly, some of the labs in Colombia model of the so-called Modelo Tanque, which is the tank model lab, which is done in Colombia. Um, it's difficult to, 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 to store the chemicals, to recycle, to produce the base, to hydrochloride, to dry it, to package it. It's just not as well organized. Whereas the Colombians come over to Europe and they get their hands on the high great precursor chemicals they need. And they don't ever have to report to stop buying or selling them. Okay, they've been arrested in labs in Netherlands, Spain, uh, UK. Um, Europe is producing quality cocaine higher than Colombia. And the guy says, we have the test to prove it. Well, uh, do you want to get in a little bit to this, into the uh, situation in Brazil? I know you see that uh, theocratic fascism taking root there and maybe being kind of a model for the rest of uh, uh, Latin America. Yeah, Brazil, my gosh. Uh, yes, definitely. Definitely. And uh, I'll, try, I'll try not to be as wordy. Um, I just want to mention that uh, during the 1930s, Brazilian fascists were called green hands by their opponents. And uh, the, uh, the green hands would go up out and they do the same thing as a bund of the U.S. They beat up communists, praise God, family and liberal economic policies. Well, they're back. And they've They've not only been back since the election of Bolsonaro, okay, and, and the jailing of Lula. They came back in the 1960s. And, and like I said, when Kennedy set up and occurred in 62, there was a four-year period of dictatorship that still was stench, much like Chile. They can't get rid of it. Okay. If Brazil was frozen during the 1930s, there's this guy's writing, his name is Wilson Luis. 
or Mueller, he's from Brazil. He's an Intercept Brazil a journalist. He writes about Bolsonaro's. And this quote, this is not a back to future style science fiction story. If a Brazilian was frozen during the 1930s and woke up in 2019, he'd be shocked. Immediately recognizing the prevailing fascist ideals and practices, he would certainly say something like, I would have bet my life that the green hands would never have become a political force representative of a secession society. Who would have predicted that they would end up running the nation? Can you send me back to the past? It was much better exchanging harmless punches with the green hands. Yeah, the green hands are here. And Bolsonaro is the green hand. And what Bolsonaro was put into power by the United States of America as was the military dictatorship, as all dictatorships in Latin America. China doesn't put in military dictatorships in Latin America. And we'll get to China soon and the difference between their form of colonization. They don't put in military dictatorships in Latin America. Only the US does. Um, Bolsonaro, Bolsonaro has made it very, very clear in Facebook and emails. First of all, Bolsonaro is being handled completely by uh, Steve Bannon. Uh, what Steve Bannon has done now is he has uh, said that Bolsonaro is now the epicenter for international fascism and that all support needs to go to assuring that Bolsonaro does not lose the election this year, um, that the shift is from Europe. It's not, it's no longer concentrated on Italy and, and Hungary. They've pretty, pretty much been kind of in the fold. They don't want to lose Brazil. It's the eighth largest economy in the world and they don't want to lose it, okay? And they're scared to death of losing it because Lula, all right, who was a member of, of the leftist, well, they call themselves leftist trade union movement, okay? Um, would have become president if, if he hadn't been put in jail through lawfare. And if, if people want to know more about that, they can go to Glenn Greenwald, who exposed the entire lawfare and how uh, the Attorney General Morrow used lawfare to put uh, Lula in prison. Well, Lula's out of prison right now, and he's running for president. Are they going to kill him? I don't know. They can't do much more to him. I mean... And they disappear him or kill him. I don't know what's going to happen. Or is, or is he going to win? And then they'll have a second backup plan. We do know one thing. Bolsonaro says he's not giving up. And Bannon said the same thing. He said, there's no way we're letting Brazil go. Okay, we have two immediate objectives for this counter-revolutionary mobilization. We are not letting go of the Bolsonaro family. We're not let go of Brazil. He's making it clear to the fraction of the ruling class that he's gone he will not let go. He will, he, will, he will die first. And he says it. Okay. He says, I will die first before I let, let, let this go. Okay? Before our hundreds of thousands of fanatical followers, Bolsonaro has become stronger. He doesn't have an electoral victory now, but he's got integralists and he's got theocratic fascists like nobody's business on, on his side. Okay. His tactic right now is to buy time. He, he, he got his, he got a he didn't, he, they didn't impeach him. They tried to, they wanted to impeach him, but they didn't impeach him. They, the, the left felt that it'd be better to beat him at the polls. Now he's saying he's not gonna give up. 
There's no way he's going to give up. Which he's basically saying to the CIA, there's no way that they're, they're going to get it. They're not going to, going, to, going to give up. There's a, no liberal opposition will ever take his place. So his government is completely dysfunctional and disruptive. The bourgeois faction doesn't really know what to do. They don't really want Bolsonaro anymore. They're scared to death. If Lula's got in the polls, Lula's 30 points ahead, but that doesn't mean anything in lawfare societies. Uh, that, that percentage can shrink by the use of polling data. And they think it's people to believe something different, which I've seen many, many times in Latin America. But the ruling class is divided over Bolsonaro. And the liberal right is more concerned with the armed forces. And there are others that are more concerned with Bolsonaro. So what, what's going on? You've got an oligarchy in Brazil that doesn't want to lose power to Lula. But that oligarchy works for the United States plutocrats, okay? And the U.S. plutocrats, of course, control the transnational corporations all over the world. And so what are they doing now, you asked about with this uh, Bannon and such and such? And please just give me a second here. And I'll, I'll, okay, there's been a fascinating manifestation of a fascist internationalist cropped up in Brazil incorporating descendants of World War II Nazi ministers overlapping with European and Brazilian aristocracies. And this is within the last two years. Now with Donald Trump out of office for the time being, his spear carriers, Steve Bannon, are anointing Jair Bolsonaro of Brazil as the point element of a contemporary fascist international. So Bolsonaro takes over from Trump as the champion of the extreme right of the world, okay? Who's involved in some of this stuff? Well, we've got a German MP, Beatrix von Storch, from the far right in Germany. She's with the AFD party, okay? The AFD is the fascist party in Germany. Um, she was in Brazil um, just months ago to hold several meetings with Brazilian, Brazilian government officials and their oligarchs and their uh, ruling class. And they have, uh, uh, you can go and Google it. There are pictures of her with uh, Nazis. Her father was finance minister for Adolf Hitler. So all the chips now are bent on Bolsonaro and it's all being run through Bannon and also through Stephen Miller. So um, in January, 2021, senior Trump's officials sent a message to other countries fascist countries, informing them that the project that they've been led by the White House would be taken over by a Bolsonaro from, from this moment on. And the Bolsonaro government is not alone in this moment to keep alive the agenda of the extreme right in the world, obviously, the New Dawn and the other ones you mentioned. But he's been given the task, Brazil has been given the task by Bannon and his crew. The task is not being given to Orban. Okay, Orban already... Gorka and Orban, they already made that happen. This is not losing to the left. Okay, so now the objective is internationalism, nationalization. They've got to get rid of the nation state. They can't have any more Brazils, Ecuadors. And this is true of, of, of technocratic fascism too. That the nation state is basically a, is a managerial level of, 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 of government. Okay, that's all the nation state does. They, Okay. The model is based on the governments of Hungary and Poland that over a decade managed to dismantle a liberal democracy and, and install a new ultra-conservative base. And that's exactly what Brazil's trying to do. 
They have sent, since 2019, they sent six missions to Hungary. A meeting was held between the Brazilian Cultural Secretary and a team from the Hungarian Ministry of Culture. Another important uh, movement is that um, the Conservative International is being planned by Beatrix von Storch, the granddaughter of Hitler's finance minister, along with Bannon. Um, there are many other people involved. She's a distant relative of Prince Charles. And um, so you can see where this might be going. The royal family is a monarchy in Brazil. Most people don't consider Brazil a monarchy, but it is. And the royal family will not give up power. Uh, although the Brazilian monarchy was deposed in 1889, the royal family still receives 2.5% tax levied on every real estate transaction okay, in the country. So obviously they weren't deposed. Von Storch's maternal grandfather, I just told you, was a few member of, of, of Hitler's third right to serve continuously. And um, he, he was prosecuted um, for stealing money from Jews and laundering money. But in 1949, he was convicted of war crimes, sentenced to 10 years in prison. But they let him out after two years. And of course, he went back to his royal duties. The Brazilian monarchy has tried to retake power in a referendum in 1993. They actually put on 1993 a referendum trying to take power back. Do you want a monarchy or no? The people voted it down. Um, Brian Myers, real good journalist in Brazil, he's a young guy. He said, I was living in San Luis, uh, uh, Brazil, he said, in, in 2016, he said, and his quote, I was living in San Luis at the time, I remember thinking, what the hell? 13% of Brazilians, mostly conservative Catholics, voted for a return to monarchy? Obviously, many of them supported Bolsonaro, too. How could they go for monarchy and Bolsonaro? And the answer is very clear. It's integralism. It's coming to the, your, your doorstep in America soon. It's the, it's, it's, it, it is clerical fascism. During the lead up to the 1964 coup in Brazil, the CIA funded anti-communist marches led by the conservative Catholic group called Tradition, family, and property. Okay. Sound like Hitler? You bet it does. So anyway, they met, all of them met in their headquarters, and they have this institute. And uh, one of the big things that they're working on, along with Bannon, is they want to make sure that they get rid of every liberation theologist in the church. They want to depose the current pope in favor of Burke. And then they completely reconstitute uh, the Vatican, uh, so that it is a blueprint of exactly the way fascist countries work. Um, so the corporations, so that we so that we would really have basically a, a, a feudalism, a, a new form of modern medieval medievalism. It would be those that those that those that uh, serve, those that own, and those that work. And by I mean those that serve, but I mean military, those that serve, those that own the rulers, and those that work to serve. And so um, 
uh, Fray Beto, who's a Portuguese language source on liberation theology, is talking about the CIA's current relationship with groups in the Vatican. So these deposed royal families um, think that th their time is right right now, and they think that Trump was their calling card, and Trump had the foot. They are now the quarterbacks. They have the football now. So Bolsonaro takes over from Trump as the champion of the extreme right in the world. And that's, that's the name of an article. It says, Bolsonaro takes over from Trump as the champion of the extreme right of the world, international by Eddie Core, Digis Matt, and it was published in August of last year. So a lot of this is new to listeners, but it's really not that new. And, um, there's tons of more information, you know, that I could just go on and on, but it's not going to be, be able to be understood if you just keep, like, come out of fire hose. I will say one thing, though. In Brazil, they are working with Vox. The head of Vox is Santiago Abascal. Vox is a fascist party in Spain that just barely lost. Okay. And Santiago Abascal is a very good friend of Eduardo Bolsonaro, and they do live broadcasts together all the time from Hungary together. They do them from Brazil together. They do them from Spain together. Orban's involved. Fidesz is involved. The AFD is involved. Golden Dawn's involved. Uh, Le Pen. They're all here. Okay, but now they've been given a notice that Brazil has become fertile ground to establish these ideas and that a government at the end of the Donald Trump election term that um, the messages were given and the collabor collaborators were told to just wait, see if Trump comes back. So we don't know what the hell to expect down here. Um, Brazil, according, according to a January 20th, 2021 email from an investigative reporter, Bolsonaro has announced that he is willing to take on this, quote, historic coalition. Uh, under this provision, the Brazilian president is responsible for leading an ultra-conservative international alliance created to influence the decision of the world basically go up against the United Nations, all liberal democracy. Coalition made up of 30 countries was called the Geneva Declaration and became a reference for the most radical wings of the religious movements. They think they're up to 30 countries. So there's a notice here, countries that want to sign the declaration, the fascist declaration basically, can do so by contacting the Brazilian embassy in the United States for more details. Our coalition is already made up of 30 countries. You can just call your local Brazilian uh, embassy wherever you live and ask for the Minister, Ministry of Women, Family, and Human Rights. And uh, they'll uh, put in a, an ultra-conservative evangelical fascist pastor on the phone asking what you want. And Bolsonaro is not alone in doing this. This is the, this is going to be the, this is the, Remember that, that Hitler had the story of uh, the, the, the Jews and the, 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 the stealing everything from the world. And, they, and they, they wanted to go back to the traditional way of life and the Aryan and all that kind of bullshit and all that stuff. This is, 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 is far, far, far more dangerous. This is not nation state. This is international and it's clerical. 
So if they do get the Vatican, God knows what they're going to have. God knows what they're going to have. All right. So how is Latin America pushing back against neoliberalism presently? I know you've uh, alluded to that a little bit throughout this uh this uh, segment here, but uh, I'm sure you have some more details you would like to share with the audience. Well, there is, there are obviously, you know, still uh, uh, military confrontations uh, and what's called the tri-border, which is a, 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 a border of Brazil, uh, Colombia, and uh, Argentina, um, where kind of like, you go there and it's like a hub for where you can, you know, get all passports and whatever you need, you know, anything illegal. Um, there's a lot of factional fighting amongst fascists. So when FARC broke up, um, the, the EFL never laid down their weapons. They just turned themselves. The EFL was, a, was another group in Colombia that were fighting for independence from fascism. They just, they just gave up. They wouldn't throw their weapons out. They gave up and they just became drug traffickers. And they, 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 so they, 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 they protect a great deal of the cocaine trafficking that goes on. Then you have FARC, uh, whose member is running for president, you know, who's a leftist who wants to you know, attempt to uh, use the electoral process uh, to rid the country of fascists. I have never heard of a country that's ever voted fascism out. Have you? Uh, not off the top of my head. Usually, oh, no. there's some kind of revolution. Exactly. Exactly. So, 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 uh, you know, it's an ultra-conservative script. It's, it's been, it's been. Well, I. What about Chile? Actually. Well, Chile is a whole different. Chile is a very interesting situation. When Pinochet was put into power September 11, 1973 in Chile, um, of course, that, and that's what people think about when they think about Latin American dictators, you know, the, the general with the general hat and the dark, dark rimmed sunglasses, you know, that are all darkened out. And, and, that, and that goes, that, that's still down here in some countries, you know, you go to Stroessner's Paraguay, though he's Stroessner's dead, he's not there anymore. You know, you find a military still play, play acts that stuff out. But that, that's pretty much old, old, old fashioned now. It's kind of like a gangs that gave up the, the got the tattoos taken off and put on long sleeve shirts and became businessmen or something, you know. Um, they hide their former identities, but they still do the same thing. So, um, um, uh, how are they fighting back, is your question, in, in Latin America? They're fighting back in an, in an attempt to use the electoral process. Why are they not fighting back the way the Nicaraguans did? Because they're not armed. Take Ecuador, for example. It's illegal to own a, a gun in, in Ecuador. You can't have a gun in it. It's illegal. If you have a gun in Ecuador, just because you're a police agent or, or, or you're a, a licensed courier for people to take money to the banks or something, and then you're given nine bullets, and each bullet has a number on it. So we don't have any, we, besides the gangs killing each other, you know, I think there's been 258 killings in the last three months with inside the prison in Ecuador. I'm not talking Brazil, I'm talking Ecuador. Okay. Outside, people don't kill them, don't shoot each other. 
There are no guns in, in Ecuador. My neighbor doesn't have a gun. I don't have a gun. I wouldn't even know where to get a gun. Right? But, 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 but in Colombia, and in the, the guns are starting to come in. Uh, 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 they're starting to come in, and, and if there's a fascist movement that's, that, 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 that's seeking arms, the guns will soon be available. Um, how are people fighting back in Latin America? Okay, take Chile. Chile is ruled by Pinochet and Pinochet government until Pinochet is arrested and uh, put on trial and then convicted and eventually dies. And they go to back to what's called a civilian government. But it's not a civilian government because it has a constitution in it that's based on the military that was written by Pinochet and his, his compinches, his friends. Okay. So how do you undo a Gordian knot that's fascist? A Gordian knot is almost impossible to undo. How do you undo a Gordian knot? It takes generations. I mean, since Pinochet died, you know how many generations have gone down the toilet as a result of what he did in the small amount of time he was in office? It's just unbelievable. You can't get the stench out of the country. Once the fascism comes in, once the insect is in the garden, it looks for a host like every parasite and you can fumigate and fumigate and fumigate and it, it, it just keeps coming back and it, begin, and it begins to adapt itself to the fumigation. So then you need a stronger chemical to kill it. So there's two ways of dealing with the fascism in, in, in Latin America. You either deal with it the way that Castro did you line them up against the wall and you kill them all. I'm not saying that that's what should be done. I'm just saying that, that there's two ways. It's plata or plomo. It's lead or, 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 or silver. It's the same thing. Now, when I, very interesting. When I was in, 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 in Nicaragua, I asked Sister Mary Hartman uh, if she could get me inside of a, a full-blown penitentiary in 1985 in Nicaragua during the height of the war. I said I wanted to interview former National Guardsmen that tortured Sandinistas. And now the game's changed and they're, they're, in, the, they're in the other position. Well, Castro was very smart. He, he told Daniel Ortega, he said, I made a big mistake. He said, I lined, um, he said, after the revolution was over, he said, I took the traitors out and I lined them against the wall and I killed them. He said, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't make the mistake that I made. He said, put him in a prison and we try to rehabilitate him and try to get him into civilian life and keep your eyes on him. He said, because if you do that, you, he said, if you do what I did at this time in history in, in the world, he said, you, 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 it won't work. You can't do it. So there's, there's no armed struggle in Ecuador, for example. Is there an armed struggle in Bolivia? Oh, you bet there was. In 2019, when the white fascists came out and, and, and tried to kill every indigenous, see, it's the indigenous that are being killed in Latin America. It's the indigenous that are being taken out first. It kind of almost, almost goes back to, to Huxley's novel, you know. Remember the character John, who's the only human left in Brave New World? It's a kind of, it's kind of like that. Well, he, he, was in, he was on a reservation. 
Right. Uh, and then they brought him into, you know, I mean, we're the, uh, the managerial class. But yeah, yeah, I get what you're saying. You get what I'm saying? In other words, the indigenous, they, they don't want indigenous customs. They don't want, they want capitalism, raw, crude form capitalism, mineral extraction. That's what Latin America is all about. Forget tourism. You can go to Cancun, go play with your tourism in Cancun, do it all there. In terms of Central and South America, we do two things. We do cocaine. Okay, and we do mineral extractions. That's what we do. You want to come down here and play tourists? Go to the Galapagos. It'll cost you ten, twenty thousand dollars, and we'll, we'll let you, you go down there. But nobody comes down here for tourism anymore since Correa got voted out of office. There's no tourism here. They don't do tourism. Mineral extraction. So how to fight it? Well, in April of last year, uh, Ecuador put up a, for election a. Uh, what they call a progressive, uh, a person who was supported by Correa, who now lives in Belgium. And um, uh, that person uh, uh, lost the election. Why, why they lost the election, the rule of lawfare, I think I've already gone over all this. I hesitate to say more. It's difficult for more my perched, um, but he lost the election. And so, um, uh, they fought back electorally and that didn't win. And so how are they fighting back? And now, well, they continue to fight back electorally. How are they fighting back in Mexico? Well, if you're a Zapatista, you just pull out. You're not a member of Mexico. You're Zapatista. How are they fighting in Colombia? Oh my God, or Brazil. They're fighting without arms. They don't have any arms. The military will go down in the favelas in Brazil and they'll just massacre people en masse. Environmentalists, civil, civil workers en masse, and people don't have arms. And they're kettled into one portion of the city where they can be kept under complete control. So the country has become a prison. The whole country is a prison. And if you're on the other side of the bars, then you're an oligarch. If you're on the other side of the bars, then you're a working person or a dispossessed. And so how do they fight against it in Brazil where they happen to have an upcoming election? Okay, the last time they had an election, it didn't work. And their candidate did four years in prison. They're fighting an election. Why? Because armed struggle won't work in Latin America anymore. You can't work in Latin America anymore. They have too many arms. Columbia, you know how much arms Columbia gets? You know how many weapons Columbia has? And when you've got the Israelis running all over Latin America, everywhere in Latin America, you have Israelis doing counterinsurgency and counterespionage. So it's, it, it, it's, armed struggle is not going to work in Argentina. So in, in, in Chile, what do they do? Well, they got rid of Pinochet through a legal process and went back to civilian life. And then life is terrible and miserable. And the young people grew up and they couldn't afford to grow to college. And so 18 and 19 year olds, 10 years ago before I left the United States, um, you know, were, um, would have a protest and a million people would show up. Well, in the 10 years, it's, it's, gone on, they tried to kill Dilma um, through the use of cancer, interesting enough, interestingly enough, uh, Chavez died of cancer too, you know, as early as 1956, the CIA had perfected how to, how to pass cancer off to, on to anybody, through clothing. Um, there were five Latin American leaders 
during the, uh, the, uh, the pink tide that came down with cancer all at the same time. Um, so they're fighting electorally in Mexico. They are fighting electorally. They um, elected AMLO. Um, so now what they're facing is they're facing the United States coalition with the gangs and the paramilitaries versus a rising young generation of 21, 22 year olds that have no future. And they are not accepting this life. And so which way will they go? Will they go fascist? Or will they go left? We don't know. It's up and down, up and down. We just don't know. So Boric is a fellow's name in Chile. He's already backpedaled on promises that he made. He got him elected three, four weeks ago. He's backpedaled. And that's because of neoliberalism. Neoliberalism as an economic system is so strong that you can say anything you want politically and get elected. You can say, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. But if you don't have control of the purse strings, if you don't control your economy, if you don't control what you produce, if you don't control consume, if you don't control the goods that are on your shelves, if you don't control your foreign policy, then there's just words. And then it just goes back and forth. One, every four years, when I'll get elected, and the, and the importance of this in closing on this is that, is, that, is that this is exactly what you're saying the United States. And this is exactly what I'm hoping that people take away from this. That this isn't a problem of the third world. Okay? This is the first world problem. And it third, it's a third, it's a third world is being organized by the first world to protect the first world. So Chomsky is absolutely right. Sub-fascism is created to protect overall fascism. And the sub-fascists are the gusanos, the worms. They do the little work of preparing the soil for the fascist plant that has to grow. And so the fight back against that has got to be a fight back against US imperialism. It cannot be a fight back against one given government in one given country. It has to be a fight back against capitalism in general, and U.S. imperialism, per se. I mean, that's my opinion. I'm giving you my opinion. You don't see this kind of activity that we've been talking about for the last God knows how many hours. You don't see this activity in socialist countries. So there's not really a socialist country in the world today. But you don't, you don't see this kind of activity in Cuba. You don't see this kind of activity in countries that have any decency. They don't, they, they don't do this. They don't have 2.2 million people in prison and, 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 and sub-fascist countries to make sure that they, and lawfare. No, this is empire. And that gets us pretty much to our last point, I think. China. Absolutely. So to wrap up, do you want to get into uh, the role the People's Republic of China is now playing in Latin America and how that has uh, changed the dynamics somewhat? Um, Sino-Latin American relations is what it's called. It's called Sino-Latin American relations. Um, and just to give you an idea of what they're like, let's just take trade. 
between the year 2000 and 2009, China and Latin America increased their trade 1,200%. In nine years, their trade went up 1,200% from 10 billion to 130 billion. In 2011, one year later, the trade went from 130 billion to 241.5 billion, making China the second largest trading partner of Latin America. And the US is the largest. The top five nations are in the China Latin trade are Brazil, Mexico, Chile, Venezuela, and Argentina. In 2009, 7% of Latin American exports were to China. Okay, these countries were not considered export countries as they are now today. And, you know, they send seven percent of what they produce to China, and it usually is raw materials or commodities like copper, iron, soybeans, oil. It was the largest export market for Brazil, China, and uh, Chile and Peru were the second so far. Um, but um, in the case of Brazil, we saw a rising middle class as a result of the trade with China. Um, China right now owns the entire car industry in, in Latin America, from Mexico all the way to Argentina. Okay. And everybody drives Chinese cars. Everybody drives, buys Chinese goods. China has a deal that they make they compete with the IMF. Here's the deal that they, they say to Ecuador. It's what they said to Rafael Correa Williams. You know, they said, how much do you how much do you owe the IMF, Correa? Correa said, well, I don't owe him anything. I why I just told him I wasn't gonna pay him. I told him, go fuck you, I'm not gonna pay him. Okay. Do you owe any other creditors? Yeah, I owe X and I owe Y and I owe C. Right, how much are you gonna need to pay him off? Well, to get my economy on a jump start and to get our debts in order and to get things in order, you know, I could, you know, I could use it for thirty billion dollars. Okay, you know, we'll loan you thirty billion dollars. We, the people of China, we'll, we'll loan you thirty billion dollars, and you know what? We won't give it to you at eight or nine percent interest like the IMF does. We'll give it to you at a one percent interest rate, and you don't have to pay it off in twenty years like the IMF and the World Bank makes you do. Well, let you pay it off in 75 years. Oh, my God. If a bank told you you could go borrow money at 1% and you had 75 years to pay it, you know, I should be around the block. So China has not only increased its exports to these countries in Latin America, 85% of Chinese foreign direct investment went to extractive industries, as did 60% of their loans. So they'll come to a place like Ecuador and they'll say, we want your copper. And Ecuador will say, well, our copper is, you know, we have a nationalized copper. That's fine. We don't, we don't, we don't want to interfere in the internal affairs in your country. We don't care if you're fascist. We don't care if you're socialist. We don't care if you're libertarian. We don't care what you call yourself. Okay. Do you want to do business? That's what the Chinese do. If you want to do business, we'll do business. We'll sit down at a table and we'll do business. The Americans, on the other hand, they come in and they say, 
we want to do business, but we want to control everything that you do, and we want to control all your trade, and we want to control all your politics, and we want to control all your foreign policy. Chinese don't do that. They say, you want socialism in Ecuador? Take it. Just as long as you adhere to the terms of the contract that we make. And you want a fascism in Brazil? Take it. Just as long as you adhere to the terms of the, of the contract we made, how many tons of coal you're going to give us in copper you're going to give us, whatever. So there, there are lots of exports here. And of course, Chinese goods are terrible. So the quality of, of goods and services from China are really, really bad, as any American can tell you. The bills in obsolescence is built in obsolescence. They're made to break after a year. I think I've owned four TV sets in nine years. They're made to surge, they're made to break. Um, so this guy Boric in Chile anyway, he's elected, the young people come out, the lost generation, two generations lost due to Pinochet. They come out, they say, no more Pinochet, the stench is gone. We're the grandsons and daughters of the, the people that died in the horrible dictatorship under Pinochet. And we demand our human rights and we demand that we rewrite the constitution so that it reflects our human rights as people, our rights to food, clothing, shelter, and a decent way of life, okay? And we're gonna do that. And so they, 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 they're being ruled at the same time by a dictatorship, Piñera, okay, who has been supported by the United States, but he has no control over the country. And so he, he's basically ousted in an election. Not only is he ousted in an election, millions and millions of people come out and protest every day, every day, every day, every day, every day. And they oust him. And they put in this 31-year-old kid who was a student leader. And he says, you know, that he believes in socialism and he's going to do X, Y, and Z. And he's part of the, uh, it's called socialism in the 21st century. It's what Chavez called it. He's part of the, uh, the pig tide and so forth and so on. But he's walking back. And why is he walking back? Or what if the United States says, well, we just won't do business with you anymore. It's a form of sanctions. They can do sanctions without saying sanctions. And that's the role of sanctions. And that's why we need a multi, multipolar world. Because we live in a unipolar world where the United States can sanction any country. And, and that country can't do business with anybody. They can't do anything. They're frozen. They're paralyzed. But now China is putting together their own SWIFT system. And now because of the sanctions on Russia and Ukraine, they're driving Russia right in, in China together. Right? And they're creating an alliance and they're doing it purposefully. It's being created by, if we had time, I'd get into the intermarian, but I don't have time, but it's being put, put together by a, a, a private military, military contractor, okay, called Stratford. Okay, and this is what is causing the whole Ukraine thing that's going on right now. It's too long a conversation right now, but it's all about the intermarian from the US point of view. It's controlling the mother island. Okay, if they can control from the, the Russian Sea all the way to the, Atl the Atlantic, all the way to the Pacific control of the world. And that's what they're trying to put together right now. And so um, China has been driven into the Russian camp. And though China has not said whether they would give military weapons or do anything militarily to help Russia, uh, they obviously, uh, 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 it's, uh, 
let me put it this way. Half the world does not support the United States sanctions against Ukraine. There's not one country in Africa that supports it. Not one country in Latin America voted for it. Not one country in the Middle East voted for it, right? The United States is standing alone on this. Half the world is saying no. And what you're seeing as an empire is just really decaying quickly. And what it's capable of doing is God knows what. I mean, Putin is a madman. There's no doubt about that. Believe me, I'm not supporting Putin. Putin has made a statement when they asked him, you know, something. He said, when they asked him, would you use nuclear weapons? He said, uh, that'd be the end of the world. Putin said, if there is no Russia, there is no world. Basically saying that, yeah, I'll use nuclear weapons. If, you're gonna, if you think you can take my country out, I will use nuclear weapons. And the United States is saying the same thing. They're saying, we're gonna, we'll, we'll take you out. We'll surround, we'll surround Taiwan and we'll take you out. And that's why there's a big, huge race on long-range ballistic missiles being done right now. But in Latin America, we don't have that. Latin America, there are certain countries. Well, let me put it this way. Latin America owes a lot of money to the United States, IMF, and World Bank, and the Bretton Woods cabal. Okay? But they owe more money to China. Venezuela is a perfect example. If it wasn't for China, Venezuela wouldn't exist. And so China is not going to let the United States steal the money they loaned to Latin America because we're talking close to trillions of dollars. They're just not going to let it happen. So how are they fighting back? They're fighting back individually in their countries electorally. Um, I don't know of any countries that are putting together underground movements that are armed. I know of nothing of that. I've read nothing about that. There are countries that are already in that situation, but there's no new ones that I've read about, other than Colombia, of course. Um, the basic line, it's, it's it, you know, it, it's like what Malcolm X said, ballot or the bullet. And they're trying to take the ballot because they don't want to have to use the bullet because they don't have the bullets. They'll, they'll lose. And what will happen is they'll force China into Latin America in a war. And that's another thing the U.S. is trying to do. They're trying to provoke China and Latin America into a war. But China is a colonialist power, and it is an empire. And I certainly, as an individual, do not look to China for any help, for any, they're not my friends, okay? And their social credit system and their you know, facial recognition and their working with Palantir and everything, uh-uh. Okay, and we'll get into this when we close, Steve, our final show, when we talk about technocratic fascism, which is a whole different subject. But no, I mean, I'm certainly not personally aboard with China, but China is, gives a better deal to Latin America than the U.S. does. And for that reason, Latin America is moving into China's sphere. And that is aggravating the Biden administration to the point where they have said Latin America is in our front yard right now. But the problem that happened is that now stop is that George Bush made the Middle East his priority for his eight years, and they took their eye off of Latin America. And what happened? Eight countries went socialist. Now the United States has got they're in Ukraine. They want to be in Russia. They want to be in China. They want to go to Africa. They don't have enough tentacles. I don't think they're going to be successful. They don't have enough tentacles but it's very precarious down here. 
at any given moment, my door could be kicked in at any given moment. You just never know. Yeah, it is uh, certainly a chilling situation. I mean, the world over right now. And I mean, uh, I imagine certainly in the developing world uh, with the you know long history of military dictatorships and uh, death squads and so forth, coup d'etats. So yeah, I mean, it's, uh, but I mean, increasingly it's looking like something that we are uh, going to have to be concerned about in the West as well in the uh, coming years, if not months. Um, well, I- Steve, it's because... I think you used the right terms. There was, there's the developing world. We, we had all these terms after World War One, right? We had, there was the first world, which was, you know, the United States and Britain and the victors in World War Two, And then there were the second world, which was France and, you know, Czechos, France and Italy, you know, which was the second one. And then there was the third world, which is Africa and, and Latin America, okay? Okay. Well, the third world was 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 referred to as the developing world, and it is developing, but it's developing mostly using Chinese money, and the United States is the undeveloping world. So you've seen now a three hundred, you've seen a hundred and eighty degree change. You've seen the feet go up and the head go down. So Latin America is developing. The United States is collapsing is undeveloping. And so it's doing military overreach. It's reaching into Ukraine, it's reaching into Taiwan, it's reaching into Latin America. And as a result, it's gonna create a civil war with inside the United States, which will inevitably bring the fascism that has been planned all along for the US. Yeah, it's a precarious situation, no doubt. On that note, I suppose we will uh, sign off for now. Hopefully be back here in a couple of weeks uh, with the examination of Europe along with John Brisson. We've read the documents. It should be a really great show there. And then uh, on to our grand finale. Well, as always, thank you guys so much for listening and your support. And with that, I will sign off. As always, good night and good luck to you all.